This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Now, time for us to uh, be joined by the first guest for the morning. Jacqueline Doughty is the curatorial manager at the Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne. And she joins us this morning to talk about a cross-disciplinary exhibition called The Score. Jacqueline, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So to begin with, what do we mean by cross-disciplinary? It's a, a term that's been bandied around in the art world for, well, certainly for the last couple decade or more. Mm. It's really gained popularity. But what does it mean? Well, it's certainly not a new concept, Um In thinking about this show, my starting point was the fact that I couldn't seem to enter a gallery without seeing dancers in the space. It has become quite a trend to um, bring dance into the space that is traditionally associated with visual art. But I was thinking this actually isn't so new. Artists have always crossed the borders, the kind of arbitrary borders between their own disciplines and taken inspiration from other forms and other disciplines. And so that was the starting point for the show, um, the desire to look at the ways that artists transcend those boundaries. Yeah. Now, the the focus is very much around the, the idea of music and its links to visual art and vice versa. And one of the things that immediately springs to mind is those rare individuals who can uh, hear colour, for Mm. example, or see music, that strange uh, kind of melding of the senses in the brain that allows people to say, oh, well, no, uh, uh, a B-flat is blue or and so forth. So was that one of the elements that you wanted to work into yes, the exhibition? Yes, there's um, a mixture of historical and contemporary work in this show and that's quite important for us at the Potter because our collection does span classical antiquity through to contemporary so we try and have a real range of material so that has become a real historical touchstone for this show that idea of colour music which evolves out of synesthesia and um, people were thinking about that in the 1800s, it was an important concept to the symbolists, um a number of art historians credit that with the rise of abstract painting, this correlation between sound and colour and the idea that an, an A-flat could be yellow or whatever colour a painter might ascribe to it. And Kandinsky, who supposedly was the first painter of an abstract work, he was a synesthete and he did think that yellow was the same thing as the clashing sound of symbols. To him, they, they were precisely correlated. It wasn't a comparison, they were the same thing. So when you stage an exhibition like this, uh, are you immediately thinking not only then are we presenting artworks, but we need to have musicians responding to the artworks in order to provide the listener with the the sensory impact that the artist had when creating it? Mm. I think it's more about bringing in artworks that combine all of these art forms that um, blur the boundaries. So we have a number of historical artworks by Roy Demestra and Ludwig Hirschfeld Mack that, yes, are by visual artists and, yes, are paintings and drawings, but are also scores for music in a sense. Um, Roy Demestra did a beautiful series of works called Rainbow Scales, and if you go up close to them, you'll see that he's written chords on them. So he thinks that those colours are music and that you can play them like a score. So there isn't actually a a musician in the space playing them for you, but you're invited to imagine what on earth would these colours sound like. In that same room, there's a work by John Nixon, a more updated version of this idea of colour music 
music are two walls of abstract paintings, but they are actually instructions for music. And at some point during the show, he will do a performance where he plays those paintings. I love the idea of, of someone playing a painting. It's, mm. a, it's a fascinating concept. To step back for a moment, the title of the exhibition, the score, is clearly referencing musical notation and the fact that uh, for centuries now we have been able to leave a record of what a work sounds like. And it fascinates me that dance also notates its mm. movement mm. Uh, so that you can recreate a choreographic work because it's been carefully notated. Mm. Does it ever surprise you that humans were capable of developing something like this, of, of capturing um, an ephemeral work, be it a, a dance piece or a piece of music, and recording it for posterity in, the, in this kind of uh, way that fixes it uh, mm. in, in perpetuity. Well, that was one of my inspirations for the show, this idea that the score is a form of translation, that it essentially is a drawing that is trying to represent something that happens in space and time and that it's trying to fix the transitory. And it can't ever fix it perfectly, particularly dance notation. That's a very complex range of possibilities to translate into two dimensions. And there are so many elements of dance that you can't capture through notation. Something will always be lost. But perhaps in the interpretation of it, something else will be gained. And it's that slippage and that capacity for transformation embodied by the score that sits at the core of this show. Which is, gives you an enormous amount of scope and uh, to within uh, to, to work with and explore for the exhibition. Mm. So I, I must I imagine there must be as much left out as you yes. as that you've been as, as compared to what you've been able well, to Well, I have to admit I was still adding things in the final week of installation because it is such a huge field and there's so much out there and because it's essentially a show about language you were saying it's amazing that scores can capture these art forms. Um, um, on two dimensions, well, language is amazing too, that we can capture such complex concepts and emotions through words. Scores are just a different form of language and art is just many, many forms of language. We're all trying to represent ideas in different ways and art is just one of those ways. Now, this exhibition, The Score, which is on at the Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne on Swanson Street, is already open, kicked off on the 1st of August and is running through until the 5th of November, presented in association with the Melbourne Festival. Mm. Uh, how uh, important is the Melbourne Festival as a partner in presenting this? Does it then open up opportunities for... Uh, more performances, more artists. Absolutely, and it was very important for a show such as this to have a strong performance component and Melbourne Festival have been fantastic in enabling that. So once the um, festival kicks off in October, we will launch our performance program in earnest. There's two key performances I'd really recommend people check out on the Melbourne Festival website and the Melbourne Recital Centre website. Um, Michaela Gleave's um, Galaxy of Suns, which is a 36-part choir. They'll be performing in the gallery, they'll be winding up the central staircase and they'll essentially be singing the stars. Her score is the galaxy. Sounds um, fantastic. She's gorgeous. What and are the acoustics like in the gallery? They're very resonant. They're beautiful. Um, a number of musicians I've spoken to have um, wanted to perform in the gallery for that very reason, so that'll be great. And Charles Gaines, a really important conceptual artist who's been working since the 70s, based in LA, will be coming out to restage his chamber opera sound text, and that takes place on the 21st of October at the Melbourne Recital Centre. Well worth checking out. He's using the language of protest and resistance and translating those words, the actual letters, into music to create his score. Now... 
to come back to some of the works in the exhibition itself, talk to us about collaboration and interpretation and how people have been inspired by other musicians in the past or, uh, or even perhaps close friends or, or colleagues and reinterpret their work, inspired to create new work and mm. so forth. How have you represented that in the exhibition? A great example of that is Nathan Gray's work in the show. So uh, the, a number of artists in the exhibition are referencing a particular form of notation that evolved in the 1950s called graphic notation, when avant-garde composers were moving beyond the bounds of standard music notation that we all recognise, the five lines on the stave and the notes. Um, that t- type of notation wasn't equal to the task of representing the new sounds they were composing. And so they started um, notating with squiggles and um, drawings and um, geometric forms and and images that you look at and you think, how on earth can that represent a sound? One of those composers was Cornelius Cardew, and he wrote an amazing score called Treatise. It's 193 pages, epic. Um, Nathan Gray has translated two pages from that score into sculpture. So he has translated two dimensions into three. Um, he has arranged those sculptural objects on the wall and on the floor, and the way that you play that score is to move the objects. So instead of creating sounds, you you um, move through space. So it's a very different way of thinking about performing a musical score and also um, a translation from 2D into 3D. So it really encompasses a lot of the shifts I'm trying to achieve with this show. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Jacqueline Doughty, who's the curatorial manager at the Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne. We're talking about the exhibition, The Score. It strikes me that this is an exhibition which is going to be really accessible to a broad audience. It's not just your regular gallery goer Mm. or your regular concert goer who's going to go to this exhibition and get something out of it. There's a real sense of the exhibition encouraging people to, to think kind of deeply and broadly about ideas about the act of embodying music, of, mm. of moving to music and the act of creation itself. Yes, definitely. And a few works you can interact with, which is always fun, a gorgeous sculptural instrument by Dylan Martirell, which um, reads the electrical impulses on your fingers and so you can touch the wires and it makes a sound. So, yeah, but I think that children will enjoy interacting with that. So, yeah, it, it really is an accessible show and um, there are a lot of very beautiful, more traditional-looking paintings, a lot of audiovisual work. There's over a 100 objects in the show, so I'm sure there'll be something that appeals to everyone. The exhibition The Score is on now until Sunday the 5th of November at the Ian Potter Museum of Art, the University of Melbourne, open Tuesdays to Fridays from 10am to 5pm, Saturdays and Sundays from midday to 5pm, closed on Monday. Entry is free. You can find out more info by jumping online www.art-museum.unimelb.edu.au. If you're heading up there on public transport, it's basically you just get off at the uh, tram terminus out the front of the university and uh, you will find the Ian Potter Museum of Art very, very easily. The exhibition, as we said, is called The Score. I've been chatting with curatorial manager Jacqueline Doughty. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. I'm joined in the studio by my next guest, choreographer Stephanie Lake, whose company, the Stephanie Lake Company, is presenting a new work, Pile of Bones, at Arts House from the 15th to the 19th of August. Steph, hello. Nice to have you back. Hello. Good morning. Good to see you again. So, um, 
But for people who haven't seen your work before, contemporary yes. choreography, uh, uh, how do you describe the, the style of work you make? If, I don't know, say you're talking to a taxi driver yes. or... Kind of, and <laughs> With great difficulty, actually, <laughs> because if, you, if you're in a taxi and you say you're a dancer, there's one thing that comes to mind and it's not... It's not flattering, okay. I'll say that, yeah. But, um, yeah, it, it is difficult. Uh, it's one of the hardest things about being a contemporary choreographer is having to talk about it because the beauty of contemporary dance is there's no talking in it. So um, to have to articulate what it is is, is a, quite a deep challenge for me. But I think, um, I mean, you can talk about the history of dance and where contemporary dance sits within that. But for me, I, can t- I talk about my work in terms of my, my particular interest in getting to extreme states physically and, and the slippage between those places. So I'm really interested in kind of intense, almost reckless, um, almost semi-violent, uh, very high-intensity movement alongside very mechanical, organised, highly rhythmic, uh, almost mechanistic Choreography, and I love the way those two things sit together. And then, and then it's really about finding, you know, what's what's the conceptual framework for that? What what does it mean? What are you trying to communicate? And why are their bodies doing it? But for me, the the actual movement creation is my key interest. That's what I love the most. Yeah. Well, it's certainly you're one of I would say one of one of my favourite Australian choreographers. Oh, that's very so, kind. Thank well, you. That's also oh. very true. Oh. Um, partly because you're you makes a lot of work and it's not like you're mm. churning out 18 works a year or something because mm. I think that would perhaps burn out but you are regularly presenting new work on stage and you're yes. regularly challenging both yourself and your audiences mm. so in the past um, I've seen work that has genuinely disturbed me for example <laughs> that you've, you've created uh, just because some of the, the drama and the intensity of it mm. uh, and other work which you talked about kind of mechanistic movement mm. before work which deliberately reference that by then bringing in kinetic sculpture mm-hmm, into the work mm-hmm. and so on. So bringing in these other elements. But one element yeah. that kind of continues to to be a focus is uh, the ongoing collaboration with Robin Fox yes. as a composer. Yes, that's uh, a big one. And the use of his electronic scores mm. in works. Uh, how do you begin to create a work? Do you already have an image in mind and mm. design elements and sound or do they grow organically as part of the process uh, as you yes. construct the dance? It's it's not exactly the same every time, obviously, but but usually it's it's quite an intuitive, uh, organic thing. It does it does evolve over time. Certainly, I always start with something. There's always some seed of an, of an idea. There's some something that that anchors it, and maybe that's a visual idea. Maybe it's maybe it's physical. Maybe it's sonic. But um, yeah, usually there's something. There's some starting point, and then the great amazing thing about making live performances you just end up somewhere completely unpredicted and amazing at the end that you couldn't have really foreseen and that's what's what's happened with this one very much so there are things happening we're we're in the tech rehearsal phase of things now so we're putting together all of the uh, set lighting costume elements and it's not what I would have expected at all but I really love it and and I love that I love that yeah, that you, you don't know what you're going to get by the end of it. 
Do you think Melbourne choreographers as a rule are more generally aware and attuned to the design elements of their work than perhaps choreographers from interstate? Ah, yeah, it's a good question. I, I'm not sure. There's definitely, uh, yeah, there's definitely a particular interest in design and and the way things, uh, the the collaborative aspect, I suppose, of, of dance making, for sure. And I think we're really lucky here that there are phenomenal designers and collaborators to work with. So, yeah, I think there's there's probably a bit of a realm of, of influence to where we've been um, probably influenced by choreographers like Lucy Guerin and Gideon Abarsnik who are very, who use really striking designs in their work. So, yeah, I, th- I think you're right about that. It's also interesting when I see works by Melbourne choreographers. There's there's a certain there's a, a not necessarily a Melbourne style per se, mm. but when I then see something like uh, Australian Dance Theatre, who uh, yes. uh, saw their work last week, for example, yes, or uh, or Dance North from from yes. Townsville, there's. Or it's always interesting to see a fresh choreographic language yes. coming in or, or, or something different. What do you think is distinctive or uh, about Melbourne choreography generally in terms mm. of the contemporary dance field? It's changed a lot over the years, actually. A few years ago, I would have said it was something uh, and and I think we've, that's moved a little bit because of the, the different uh, choreographers that are working in Melbourne at the moment. Um, yeah, it's it's really hard to identify actually because there are a lot of you you see a lot of work. Um, I'm sure you're aware there are, even though it's a small community and we all know each other and I love that. Um, there are there are, there's enough going on that there are lots of little subcultures within the dance community. So I, I don't think you could you could say what it is actually. Okay. It would be impossible to compare something like you know the work that Chunky Moves doing to uh, Atlanta Eek or you know I think yeah. There's a lot going on. That's what we love about it. The fact that, as you said, Melbourne choreographers do all know each other, is there mm. the risk that as choreographers you end up making work for one another rather than for oh, the audience? Oh, of course there is, yeah. But I'm very conscious of my audience when I'm making work. I think about them all the time. <laughs> I love my audience. No, I'm really, I, I really try and put myself in the shoes of the audience as I'm making the work and very conscious of what how images read and 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 what the experience is what what the what the experience is from that first image to the end what yeah what kind where of, you're taken what kind of experiences mm. and what kind of images were you focusing on and creating for for this new work mm. well uh we're looking at themes of um nurture and suppression desire this idea of the uprising of inner demons and angels. So it's it's quite it's it sounds serious, but actually, <laughs> by the end we really get to a place of it's pretty rapturous. By the end, actually, it starts from a very small, almost embryonic starting point. I wanted the first image to be extremely quiet and small. There's the bodies are stacked on each other like a pile of bones really references the title there and and gradually across the duration of the work everything expands and intensifies and gets really um kind of amplified so visually sonically physically blows out and by the end we get to this kind of pulsing uh frenetic quite joyous for me even though they're they're really thrashing around but there's something about i don't know what it is but i really love the the communal aspect of dance i love bodies moving together there's something deeply satisfying about that and i think we can it it doesn't 
going back to your question about are we just making it for other choreographers, I think um, that's what makes dance so relatable. We love seeing people moving. You, you want to move. And so if I hear that an audience has had a kind of visceral reaction in the audience that they've maybe been pulsing along with what's happening or there's been a bit of squirming in the seat or flinching when the dancers, um, you know, twitch, oh, I love that. That's that's really if there's been some kind of some kind of physical reaction from the audience, then that I feel like I've I've done something successfully. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why contemporary dance as an art form is so fascinating for audiences as well, mm. because you may not be able to imagine yourself precisely moving the way that trained bodies do on mm. stage, but you can nonetheless. Uh, you may have never acted in a play, for example. So watching an actor, you don't necessarily relate to what they're doing. But mm. watching dancers, everybody at some point has cut loose on a dance yeah, floor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so that uh, knowing the exhilaration that movement can have, whether exactly. it's kind of the, the combination of exhaustion and thrill and delight mm. or, or whatever, mm. kind of I think, yeah, you can read and feel dance in a way that connects you as an audience member to the bodies on stage. Absolutely, yeah, and that's what's thrilling about it. Uh, yeah, it's an empathetic response. We we feel it, and and I know for myself as an audience member, if I see work that I yeah I, I almost want to be, I want to be doing it, or you you feel like your maybe your heart rate's increasing a bit while you're watching it. Yeah, that really that that gets me, and that's that's the kind of work I want to make. We're talking with choreographer Stephanie Lake, whose latest production, Pile of Bones, is on at Arts House in North Melbourne from the 15th to the 19th of August. Now, in terms of uh, presenting the work mm. in the, the space at Arts House, yeah. it's a big space to play with. Yeah, How much great. does that shape the work? Uh, well, we're just in there. So we've, this, is, this work's been in development for a, a year or more um, at different times. We're just in there this week, so it's this is crunch time. It's exciting, but it does change the work a lot. When you're used to watching watching the piece in the studio environment, then shifting to the theatre is always a little bit of a shock. <laughs> it's like, oh wow, okay, we've got a lot of depth and height, and there's kind of all sorts of things to manage. But it's exciting, of course. It's it's really really exciting, but. That North Melbourne Town Hall venue has got a really high ceiling and, and it has got depth and so we've tried to use that in the work. I don't want to give anything away but there's some really nice um, use of the space. Yeah. I look forward to checking that out. Mm. And just finally, uh, who are the, the dancers oh, that you're God. making this The on? dancers are so amazing. I just would encourage anyone who um, wants to see some amazing dancers to come and see this. Uh, we've got Samantha Hines, Jack Zizing, Harrison Ritchie-Jones and Marlo Benjamin. Quite an eclectic group and all from different uh, company backgrounds and um, different experience. So really nice, amazing, amazing group of dancers. They've been just taking my breath away. I look forward yeah. to them taking my breath away oh, as well. I hope that happens, yes. Stephanie Lake Company's Pile of Bones is on at Arts House, as I said, from the 15th to the 19th of August, 7.30pm on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. Uh, and then on the Saturday, the 19th of August, performances at 2pm and 7.30pm. Uh, runs for 60 minutes and tickets range from $25 to $35. And it's on at Arts House, North Melbourne Town Hall on the corner of Queensbury Street and Errol Street in North Melbourne. And you can book by going to artshouse.com.au or calling 9322-3720. Stephanie Lake, many thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Richard. I look forward to seeing you at opening night. Yes, see you there. 
three triple R. I need more coffee, uh, but I'm here to, with the two excellent guests who will keep me alert and focused as part of a stimulating conversation about the latest production by Elbow Room, an independent theatre company, joined in the studio by co-artistic director of Elbow Room and co-creator and performer in their new work, Niche, Emily Tomlins. Hello. And director, Nick Hollis. Hello. Hello, Richard. Lovely to have you both here. Thanks for having us. Mm. So Elbow Room is a company that began in Brisbane and then kind of relocated down to Melbourne. Well, I mean, it, it, it essentially began in Melbourne, but uh, it came from two of us Brisbaneites who um, who moved, Marcel Dorney and myself, who is the other um, co-artistic director. So we moved to Melbourne um, because we wanted to come to a bigger city and we wanted to create our own work. And at the time in Brisbane, it was quite hard. Um, and we decided when we got here with a couple of other friends that we would uh, form a company in Elbow Room was born. Okay. Yeah. So, because every time I go back to, to up to Brisbane and talk to Brisbane artists, they, they speak very fondly mm-hmm. of you and Marcel and, and sadly that you that you left, I think. Yeah, we, we, we miss Brisbane a lot, but it was the right um, choice for us at the time to move to Melbourne and we, we haven't looked back. But we go, we go back to Brisbane regularly and we take our work there and we're supported um, beautifully by, by everyone who's still there. Of course, a lot of people move to Melbourne as well. So we have a lot of Brisbane friends here in Melbourne as well. Uh, most of my friends in Melbourne aren't from Melbourne. No, originally. that's right. Nick, yeah. where are you from originally? Well, I was born in Sydney, but uh, I spent a lot of time in Brisbane, which is ex- exactly where I met Marcel and Emily. And we all worked together a long time ago in the early mid thousands. Um, I was directing work up there. Emily was in one of those shows. I directed one of Marcel's plays with, for my company. And then Marcel and I created a work for the Next Wave Festival in Brisbane Powerhouse in 2010 called Youth Versus Physics, which was a very long time ago now. Well, so coming back into the elbow room fold with this work, mm. Niche. Now, uh, despite the fact that Emily is the co-creator of the show, Nick, I'm going to get you to tell us from a directorial point of view, what is Niche and what's it about? Niche is a contemporary performance smackdown between a pop star and an epidemiologist. Uh, I like to think of it in that long line of mismatched lady buddy comedies uh, <laughs> like uh, Beaches, Thelma and Louise and Aliens. That's how I describe it. Uh, emphasis on the aliens. It really goes to a <laughs> wild place there. Is that doing it justice? <laughs> Uh, look, that's um, yeah, that's that's one way to look at it. <laughs> it's also an exploration of celebrity, what it means to be famous in a digital age where anybody can go viral sometimes for the for very wrong reasons. That's right. Yeah, it's a it's and I mean obviously that's a that's a massive kind of subject to to um to tackle. Um, I think what we were really interested in is that is is the way that that sometimes that uh, causes tribalism. Um, that that you know there there are little groups that can kind of um, that that can happen because of of that kind of um, interaction um, with celebrity. Um, it's interesting in this kind of age of interconnectedness how we can also kind of start to to separate from from each other. So we're definitely exploring those kind of avenues. Mm. Um, we're also, you know, we're also excited about the pop music side of it. I mean, we're certainly kind of looking at a balance between, you know, what's what's kind of um, scary about uh, the modern age of celebrity, but 
but also what's exciting about it. So it's also absolutely a celebration of that as well. Mm. Um, because, of course, you know, we, we all get... Um, you know, excited by, inspired by, you know, we all get that feeling um, when we hear our favourite song or we, you know, read our favourite book or whatever it is, you know, whatever art it is. Um, so we're certainly kind of celebrating that side of it as well. I'm, I'm, there's an intriguing thread that's emerging from Elbow Room Productions in recent years mm-hmm. about the influence of, of pop culture. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking prehistoric, we looked at punk rock, for mm-hmm. example, in, yeah. in Brisbane in the 70s. Niche, we've got pop music uh, in We Get It, which was, uh, what, two years ago? Yeah, now? 2015. Yeah, that yeah. was kind of theatre and uh, reality TV, for That's example. Right. So there's a real kind of um, th- a connecting thread between those works around the the influence, how we make culture and how culture makes us. That's right. And, I mean, it's something that we can all relate to. It's something that we as a company are very interested in. And we're also really interested in terms of being able to explore that in a theatrical context, Mm. you know, because there's something about theatre unlike anything else where, you know, you're you're in a room with other people and you have to acknowledge their existence and there's something that's really exciting about then talking about these other things where, you know, perhaps we kind of pull away from each other or we can be locked in a room or behind a screen or or whatever, you know, being able to talk about those in a room where we're all there and we're all acknowledging each other. So, um, yeah, we are. We're really excited and interested in that. And we're mm. continuing to explore it. Nick, a work like this which... Uh on one level, the, the notion of the pop diva of fame and so on has been done to death. What's new about this production and what did attracted you to the project as director? Oh, gosh. Well, I think what's new about it is that we're taking... Uh these two st- stories of two women kind of at the top of their game and we explore the world of women in, in science. Um, Emily's character, Jodie, is an epidemiologist uh, and the, the premise, uh, if you will, of the show is that Jodie is hired to make Niche go viral, um, which, of course, is, is impossible and slightly ridiculous when you talk about an actual established and esteemed epidemiologist. Um, and what's really fascinating is it leaps then into a place of examining high and low culture because Jodie, um, like I'm sure many of us at one point in our lives, is kind of looks down a little on the world of popular culture and pop music and thinks that she is slightly above it. Um, and we extend that courtesy often of imagining that, you know, uh, women who have to work very hard in science to get to where they get to through a whole series of, of systemic barriers um, and they should be applauded for that. But we don't always offer that same courtesy or consideration when we think about women in the pop music industry and what uh, it feels like to be that woman with all of the world's eyes on you um, and what you have to do to succeed. So it's, it, um, it's a really fascinating, funny and wry look at that balance between um, cultural superiority and intellectual snobbery. Okay, I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. I'm very much intrigued because, yeah, as you say, uh, there is, uh, and I'm sure it's relatively common amongst people like myself who listen to a lot of kind of indie bands and mm-hmm. pop music. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's, That's so, right. it's so superficial. Uh, but then I'm the one who's being superficial because there's a lot of craft that goes into pop music. That's right. There's a lot of craft that goes into the polishing of an image and the the reinvention of image that, uh, I mean, Madonna is the, the living kind of example of Absolutely. that. Absolutely. So, and also, as you say, the... Um, the, we know about the, the, the barriers uh, created by 
sexism and men in the industry mm-hmm. and sneering, contempting and so forth. But we don't think about the women in pop in that way because they're in an art form that we're, we're thinking is somehow less than or other. That's right. And something that we're used to kind of examining in a very certain way, particularly because of the way things are sold and particularly the way the female form is sold mm. and the way that the, the female image is sold. So, yeah, that's something that we're definitely really interested in and exploring in the show. Totally. I mean, I love, ways. I love pop music. So when and, and I have a background through my HIV activism in, you know, Epidemics and epidemiology. So we were actually sitting at the pub with Mars and M um, last year, and Emily started to tell me about this show that her and EJ Erin Jean Norville, who is um, Emily's uh, co-creator and co-star, uh, were working on. And they, the more they kept talking about it, I just went. I just have to let you know that I'm going to have to direct the show. It's everything that I love and work for. <laughs> and also just that pairing. I'm really fascinated by the pairing of um, uh, epidemiology, the study of epidemics and the spread of disease. That's right. um, and the idea of viral kind of fame in the, mm. in the 21st century. Yeah. It, it's a kind of really unlikely but also yet very logical pairing as mm. well. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, the was there a particular kind of kernel or genesis that that this production has grown out of? Um, look, Erin Jean and I have um, we have been friends for a long time. We actually collaborated. We met on a tour, a schools tour for Bell Shakespeare in 2008, and in 2009 we made our first show together, which was a tiny chorus, which was a um, a clown show about two kind of an odd couple clown show about two um, people who, two friends who loved each other but couldn't really communicate that with each other. And since then, and that that went really well, we had three seasons of that and we loved working together. We have a very similar wicked sense of humour and we knew that we had to get back into a room together and create. Both of us have been incredibly busy over the last few years, which we're very um, fortunate to be. Um, But for a long time since that show, we have been talking about how we can work together again. And the first thing I think was we were actually talking about um, the image of a of a woman and the different shapes uh, that that women make or are, are seen making, particularly in the public eye. Um, and we were interested in in what that might be or how we could kind of explore that. And then through that, we went through a lot of different kind of. Um, you know, we morphed through a lot of different things um, and came to this idea of of this pop star. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, and so we've been developing it for a number of years, actually, um, and and now it's here. The fact that uh, a work can literally take years, I think, sometimes surprises people who aren't in the industry. They just Mm. go, sorry, you just sit down, write a play, cast it and put it on. Oh, I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, how long have you been involved in the development of the work? You said it was last year that you had the conversation in the pub. So Yeah, we started to talk last year and I had actually uh, taken a big break out of directing work and creating work um, uh, aside from my work as an arts producer. I hadn't really directed or created anything uh, since a show called Udu Ubukuya, which is still going today, um, uh, because my HIV activism was had taken over my life. And... Um, it just came along at the exact right time. Um, and I just moved back to Melbourne. So uh, it's really been since the start of the year, I think around February or so, that 
I came on board and we had a couple of development periods um, and going up into rehearsals right now, which has been so epic. I mean, this is, we might say it's at work, you know, just a cast of two, but we're putting, we're staging pop songs. It's like a mini pop concert Mm -hmm. in the middle of there. There's a huge world of AV. We're trying to basically recreate Wembley Stadium uh, (laughs) in the Northcote Town Hall and also a incredibly intellectually rigorous world of science yeah. on stage so and it's, it's an epic of, production and doing all of this with the budget of an independent theatre company of course hey. absolutely <laughs> absolutely we, but it's one of those things that it's um and i see it so much in the independent theatre and then sometimes i turn around and i look at the main stage and, and sigh a little because the ingenuity that um uh indie companies have in order to go right we don't have the budget that for kind yeah. of a revolving set and mm. built on three light stories or whatever how do we do it our way yeah. kind of create some fascinating rich inventive and highly visual work that's right and I, we were just talking about this last night too we have some amazing creatives working with us and you know that they're people who are at the top of their game. Um, they choose to do independent theatre because they, like us, want to tell stories that aren't being told elsewhere. And I think what really makes them guns is that they're able to do what they do without all of the resources that mm. are usually available, you know. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's pretty... We're, we're very lucky and um, it's pretty special. I think there's going to be some amazing things... Uh, Oh, my goodness. Perpetuated. Oh, wow. It's, it's been so much fun. You know, we've been recording in the studio um, Nisha's pop songs and we've been figuring out all the world of the AV. And, we've been working and with um, Robin Waters mm. from The Boat People. Um, he also works with Ella Hooper amongst other people. He's yeah. been amazing. He's been uh, producing the songs and helping to compose with Mars and Erin Jean. And Nisha's uh, pop star outfits are a show of their own. Emily Collett, yeah. our <laughs> costume designer, yeah. is bringing her absolute A-game. But I think you're really right Richard and that's one of the reasons why I said yes right away to the gig is because companies like Elbow Room create independent theatre not because they're wanting to showcase themselves and get a gig with some of the larger players it's because they understand that a vibrant independent theatre culture is so essential uh, in the kind of broader arts discourse in Melbourne and I mean I've as I said I've known um, Em and Mars for uh, you know, for years. I met myself when I was 17 years old in Brisbane. Um, and I really do think that they've changed the way Melbourne talks about independent theatre. Like, they've, they've really created a huge shift in the culture here, so it's really exciting. And they should be proud. And Emily's, of course, scoffing and <laughs> oh, hiding yeah, in the corner and under the table at the moment at me saying that. But it's absolutely true. The, the work speaks for itself. Niche is the latest work from independent theatre company Elbow Room. It's on in the Northcote Town Hall, uh, 189 High Street, Northcote. The 86 tram stops right outside, very easy to get to. From the 16th to the 26th of August, uh, Wednesdays to Saturday at 7.30pm, Sundays at 6.30pm. Tickets, so so cheap, uh, $25 for the previews. Yeah. Uh, and then in the, the main season, uh, from... $28 concession, $33 full. Uh, that's uh, a bargain for, for high-quality independent theatre, which, as you said, also will give you a Wembley Stadium pop <laughs> concert. It's going to be fun. And some hard science to, to <laughs> absolutely. wrestle with as well. All your money back. I don't have to, I don't have to answer that call. So all your money back. <laughs> be careful with what you say. <laughs> if you want a book to get along and see Niche uh, by Elbow Room, which I highly recommend. They're one of my favourite independent theatre companies uh, in the country, not just Melbourne. Uh, you can book by calling 9 
94819500 or jump online www.northcotetownhall.com.au. Those details again, the season from the 16th to the 26th of August, Northcote Town Hall. Bookings at northcotetownhall.com.au or 94819500. Emily, Nick, thank you both so much for coming in and chatting to us. Thanks, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.